Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Mick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jake Gunderson, as well as returning for a second episode, Google developer expert and Android developer at Trello, Wendau. It's good to have you back, Wen. Hey, great to be back. Thanks so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Right, well, I've set the timer because you know the score now. You've got 20 minutes <laughs> and uh, and you can kick us off with talking about Android. Absolutely. So uh, something that's been kind of a big deal, <laughs> to put it lightly, in the last couple of years for Android has been material design. And I think I'll start off with a little story. Uh, when I started Android, it's like back in 2009, 2010, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, and if you ask any Android developer, it, it's fair to say that Android wasn't huge on good design in the beginning, um, if, if anybody out there can remember what those old gingerbread and Froyo apps looked like. Uh, it was functional, but not necessarily pretty. And I think it was just kind of like this cross we, we bore for a long time. And then around, I guess, Android 4 with Honeycomb and Ice Cream Sandwich, we kind of got like an inkling of trying to move towards a better defined look for Android with what is known as the hollow theme. And and it was kind of a big deal. It was the recommended theme. And in fact, it, it became this like requirement for um, Android 4 devices in order to have access to the what was then known as the Android market. And I think it was a really good step forward into kind of enhancing, I guess, the visual, the visuals and the design of Android. But uh, me personally, I, I used to work on many like dual platform teams, so iOS teams and Android. And I think back in those days, even just a few years ago, when we were still kind of on in the hollow era, uh, with the steps that Google was making and trying to do things like create their own type uh, font, uh, font type, uh, Roboto, and try to make things a little bit more integrated and more consistent, I, I constantly would be on these teams where, especially when you're building a product that's iOS and Android, there's these questions of how do you balance um, branding and identity in design, but also respecting the conventions on each respective platform. So a lot of times when I was on these dual platforms and on the Android side, we'd get these questions like, well, what's the Android way? How would Android do this? And back in those days, it, it actually was a hard question to answer. And luckily, kind of somewhere in the middle of that whole era, we had two people, or actually three people rather, from Google, uh, Roman Nurek, who's a design advocate, Nick Butcher, who's also a design advocate, and Adam Koch, they started this whole initiative, um, I believe it was a YouTube channel called Android Design in Action. And they just would do different episodes where they would address how, what, like, what is the Android way of doing certain things? Like, how do you handle collection? How do you display images? What should onboarding look like? And the whole idea was to look at apps and try to come up with a consistent Android way of doing things. And it was really fantastic. And it was an incredible resource. And I, I can't count how many times that I would link a video when we would have these design questions on my dual platform teams and say, hey, look at this. This is how we should be doing it um, on Android. Um, and that was great. But at the same time, it wasn't like it was official, but it wasn't like out there. It wasn't something that everybody knew about, unfortunately. And I think I remember distinctly being at a conference and having someone ask uh, a group of developers, well, what do you want? And I specifically said, I want what I want more of what Roman and Nick and Adam are doing. We want um, more consistent and more specific kind of design guidelines. So we know what we should do in these situations so that we can explain what Android is. Uh, and I think that was like I think that was like uh, maybe like very early 2014, like March. And then in June 2014, uh, Google announced Android L. And with Android L came this thing called material design. 
And material design was basically everything that I know I personally wanted, and I think was something that we sorely needed in Android. And that was like a specific visual design language for developing apps across various platforms and screen sizes. And just, I mean, really, it's just basically a way of making beautiful design and beautiful interactions and having conventions, components that allow us to be consistent and allow us to both kind of make expressive, beautiful apps, but still kind of keep a very consistent experience for the users. And I guess we were talking a little bit earlier, Mick, and you mentioned like just, and, and as I said, I, I used to be an iOS developer as well. And it was kind of funny because the year before that, um, I know that we had a big switch from iOS 6 to iOS 7, and that was a huge visual change. And I think there's a lot of parallels there because I know like for, and I, I someone please correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember like, iOS 6 to iOS 7 was a huge visual change from going to the previous slightly skeuomorphic, uh, you know, conventions to very flat, um, very graphical, um, kind of more, I guess, bold, I guess, style. And I think in a very similar way, uh, Material Design did a very similar thing where we had a lot of gradients before and a lot of kind of like more, uh, I guess, kind of, kind of that kind of style to more slightly flat, um, although Material it does have some slight due to the name it does have a slight kind of tangibility to it but basically like i think everyone kind of knew on all, all over the mobile space that um design is becoming very important i think google did a really good job switching to that um and it was a really great change i know for me and you know um and it's kind of become like a very luckily it's become a very prominent thing i think in app design and and um just i guess to go from a high level you know there's basically three concepts to material um, three kind of central ideas and the first that uh, the first thing that they that Google says is material is a metaphor. So, while I said that we are moving away from kind of the old skeuomorphic, you know, like super gradiated, gradiented. I don't know what the adjective there would be, <laughs> but um, basically the idea is that there's still a sense of physicality. There's still the, the sense that UIs are based in kind of physical space. So we have things like sheets, like basically pieces of the UI look like paper that are floating on top of each other. So there, there is a sense of like shadowing and like kind of like Z positioning where things are on top of each other, but still in a very simplified way. And, and, and things can interact in ways that things don't in, interact in real life. Like you could have two pieces of the interface kind of merge together to form like a bigger interface, a uh, bigger piece of the interface and things like that. Um, so that's kind of like, there, it's a simp simplified, still physical, but less very literal, I think, um, interpretation of, I guess, reality in uh, the mobile space. Um, so the second, pre uh, the second, I guess, concept with material is this idea of bold, graphic, intentional. And I think, um, I remember like as I was getting back into mobile that, you know, I think in the website there was a lot of emphasis on going to print uh, print design kind of concepts like um, grids and things like that. And I think Google also took a lot of inf uh, inspiration for that as well from kind of, again, print um, inspirations where you have grids, um, you have a very specific notion of things being positioned along key lines um, and things being bold and more colorful and just more intentional. And a lot of this is, I think, taking these ideas of print where I think the arrangement and the color and the way things are uh, positioned kind of basically organize information and kind of point the reader to different places. And similarly, uh, I think one of the, the second the second concept of material is, again, using color, using key lines and layout to kind of direct the user where they need to go and maybe make an action that's important to the user or frequently used will stand out a little bit better. So there's that. And then finally um, is motion. So motion provides meaning is the third kind of like material concept. And basically it's just about animations and transitions, you know, making things fun to look at and fun to interact with. 
um, a phrase you hear get tossed around a lot is delightful details. So things like um, if you think of like an Android app and you have this like hamburger menu button in the upper left corner, and sometimes you'll hit like a detail screen and that hamburger menu will change now. It'll actually animate into this little like up back arrow. And so small things like that and then taking that and putting it in different areas of the app. And, you know, when you touch something now, it doesn't just highlight, but there's like ripples and like just all these kind of animations and like different ways of doing transitions so that you can kind of uh, move the user from one screen of information to the other and kind of keep common elements. And again, it's all about kind of providing direction and keeping kind of a consistent, like, I guess, cognitive flow or something like that for the user. So this, that's very high level. And I think, you know, for for us as developers, it's been really nice to have things like these high level concepts kind of articulated in this way. We have to take these like high level concepts and make them real. And what's been really great is like, I think, Google started off with these this very level high like very high level these high level concepts these high level ideas, and tried to make them as coherent as possible. And the challenge in the last year and a half for developers is how do we make this stuff happen? And you know you'll see a lot of like when we when it first was released you'd see a lot of really great animations and, and conceptual things where you'd see like sheets flying around and like buttons uh, kind of revealing themselves and like popping up into this and popping down into that and it was beautiful and it was really exciting. But it became a real challenge very quickly to figure out how to integrate these things. And there were some parts that are easier to integrate than others and th things that we got right away and things that have been rolling out very slowly. So I think that's been the number one challenge for us. And so while it's great to have all these kind of high level concepts, it's good to know, like, how do you actually do them in your app? And so I think we were lucky in that when Lollipop came out, we got a bunch of things out for free. So. Going back to this whole idea of things being bold and graphic and intentional, there's a lot of very literal kind of work with color that you do now. And so rather than just having a theme that you plop into your activities or something, there's a very deep connection to being able to do things with branding and like making an app look like it belongs to your company, that it's part of your company's identity. And it's done very simply through things like this notion of primary and accent colors and being just very simply to pick those things and by just specifying them in one place inside of your like activity themes in Android, you have this, these colors kind of like disseminated through different parts um, of the platform for free. So things like buttons and text views and edit views and all these kind of different components that live in Android um, will get this styling for free. So very instantly you kind of get, again, that bold graphic intentional kind of look inside of your apps by using the default themes and tweaking them a little bit. Um, so it's, that's kind of a, basically a really good starting point for material and it's something that, again, is really easy to do. It's just available outside of the box and that was great. Another thing that kind of related really closely to, again, the print uh, metaphor or the print inspirations is typography. There's been a huge, I think, emphasis uh, in the last couple of years on typography and how does text look in your applications, which has been great. Um, I'm actually a slight type, typo typography nut, so this has been kind of fun for me. And while it seems kind of intimidating, this idea of like having very specific like typographic scales and having things at different sizes, um, it's actually all encoded into Android as well. So in these themes, you have what are called styles, and styles like will generally encode different kind of aspects of how a view will look, and that also includes text, so things like typeface, um, type size, any kind of styling, bullet talk, all that kind of stuff. And when Lollipop was released, we got, again, a lot of that for free. There's kind of like a basic default typographic scale that has different names for different like types of types <laughs> or types of text, <laughs> like 
headline and display and like caption and all these kind of like really kind of very straightforward, very easy to understand and very easy to talk about styles that you kind of got again for free with the default themes and, you know, kind of encouraging people to use that and to think in this way, you know, instead of just thinking in very little literal ways like we did before, we had material where you had to communicate like kind of a lot more intensely with your designer and figure out exact font sizes. And with Android, it's never about one font size. It's about like several ranges of font sizes because screens are different sizes and form factors. Um, a lot of that was kind of integrated into the themes and kind of given to you again, slightly for free <laughs> with Android and with, and with all this material stuff. So that's been great. Um, and also with Olipop, we got some new um, components. So I think apart from just like styling and apart from just design uh, centric kind of additions to the platform, we also got new components. And I think a lot of that was um, very good from a software design uh, aspect as well as being very good design, like just strictly from visual and design um, because we actually got some really great new components. So in Lollipop, we got this great component called Recycler View. Now, if you're an iOS developer, Recycler View is very much like UI collection view. It became this like very new, very more, much more flexible way of presenting collections. Um, so we evolved on Android from list view to recycler view, kind of similarly to how iOS had like table view before, and now they have like collection view. So that's kind of like the parallel there. And um, and in kind of like other small places, right? Um, if you've been doing Android for a while, you know that for some time we've had that action bar, that kind of like bar at the top of the screens, which um, holds a lot of information as well as like actions. And it used to be really tightly integrated into the activity, into like the actual like kind of declaration of the activity, but now it's been kind of pulled out to make it both more flexible um, and so you could do more cool things with it. And so like when we, we got this first initial release of material, we got kind of all the stuff to play with and there's a lot of good stuff out of the box. Um, and a lot of it's kind of very basic stuff, a lot of very architectural stuff, um, which, is, which has been fantastic. And, you know, as we kind of have gotten kind of more into material, people are kind of like doing it more by default. It's kind of a lot more prevalent. It's a lot more kind of like the default way we do things. Um, some of the more advanced stuff have become like the big problem. So kind of going back again to the three concepts, uh, material, the metaphor, uh, bold, graphic, intentional, and motion, there's a lot of like things. There's a lot of like guidelines, components, and patterns now that you see in Android uh, related to actual development and actual UI, like what components do you use? Like how do you show progress? How do you scroll information? And a lot of that is stuff that you should do and that makes um, your app not just more beautiful but more consistent. But it's, it's been a bear trying to like do some of these things in Android. So for example, um, something you'll see a lot in Android apps, both from Google and now from like, you know, everybody else these days, is this notion of kind of like the toolbar, that little tiny bar that used to just sit at the top of an activity. activity. Um, it'll actually now maybe sometimes start off as a huge like full bleed image and with maybe some content below it. And as you scroll up, that image will start to shrink and start to kind of fade back into a, you know, a solid color toolbar. And that was kind of like one of the big, like new design motifs that you saw a ton when Material came out. Like all of these toolbars are now kind of like very visual and like they kind of do this kind of growing and shrinking and, and doing all this cool animation. And the rest of us were like, okay, that's really awesome, but how the heck do we do that? And for the first, I'd say like year, um, a lot of people, um, and a lot of credit to people in the Android community. A lot of people try to do this, but they would do it on their own. So that, like, in that first year after like June 2014, and that fall when Lollipop got developed, you started to see a lot of really cool libraries where people trying to emulate these things that they saw um, demo-wise in material and actually make code out of that. So that was one of the first things that happened. People trying to figure out how do we get this toolbar to like grow and shrink and and make the transition look great. 
and that was just one of those things and there's a lot of like a lot of the motion stuff a lot of the animation stuff has been just inherently difficult to do so there's things like now when you touch a button it ripples out there's again like i mentioned there's this idea of shared element transitions where say you have like a list that shows a bunch of album covers you click on an album cover and rather than just doing kind of like a cross fade or kind of like some kind of like you know slide transition that album cover will actually stay on the screen and expand out to the detail view that's like an example you see a lot and you can do that through what are known shared element transitions and all kinds of other animated things and it's really great if you're on a device that's running Lollipop and above, but a big problem for developers when this first came out is that we, at the time, you know, you know how it, how it is with Android, a new, a new like version gets announced, but the rest of us are like, well, we're still going to be supporting five versions back for the next like three years. So how do we bring all of these cool, new, sexy things to the older versions? And for a lot of the animated stuff, it was just not possible. Things like ripples, things like these shared element, element transitions, things like um, this thing called circular reveal. A lot of these things were not available strict, like a period on in, in any kind of com compatibility kind of sense um, on any versions of Android prior to Lollipop. Now there's a very good like, there's a very good technical reason for that. And that's because uh, Lollipop introduced this system component called a render thread. Um, which is specifically designed to offload some of that animation to make them smoother. So that's why you couldn't get them. And so a lot of the question also in this kind of like period of like material growing pain is like, so what do we do? What do we do when we want to have these beautiful things, but still support like all the way down to, you know, whatever, 10, 12, 14, whatever people are, are fine with supporting these days. So, I mean, there's been a lot of like decision making and like, when do you cut things off or how do you decide I want to use a third party library that, finds a way to kind of bring this but may not be as performant so I guess just it's just been it's been pretty interesting um kind of transition and and I think to Google's credit they have been sorry addressing a lot of these issues so I have I have a question for you about sure. kind of some of the com some comparison points between iOS and Android just because I'm not an Android developer so so and this specifically has to do with kind of how controls work and mm -hmm. kind of conventions right so on iOS we have conventions and, and you can usually as a developer usually will catch or even as a heavy user usually catch when the when those conventions are violated so mm -hmm. if something makes sense to be a, like a tab bar and somebody structures it as like a, a stacked uh, navigation hierarchy or something mm -hmm. like that you, you can usually tell as a developer like this doesn't this is wrong this is not the way to do this right, right. um is is Android similarly and, and specifically did Material Design introduce some of those same kind of opinionated like if you have this structure of mm -hmm. information, yeah. then as a developer, you have a pretty clear idea of like, oh, this should go in this kind of control or this kind of view hierarchy in order to structure this information. Actually, um, the Material Design guidelines, which came out with Lollipop, are are very good with that. And they do go into that kind of detail of in this situation and that situation you should use perhaps this layout or you should use this component. And they're actually very detailed. They give very specific, they try to be as specific as possible with the situations in which you would use one solution rather than the other. Um, so things like tab bar layout versus say like a menu in the, in the tab bar, they, they do address like when you would use that or like why you wouldn't, wouldn't mind mix it. Uh, going down to even like, say you have like, I, I think they've even gone down to like, say using um, a big metaphor in materials has been cards. 
Um, and so like say like a, a component like a card like when we first when material first got announced everybody just started sticking cards everywhere because they figured that was material but when the material design li- design guidelines actually came out the guidelines are very specific in like hey if you have like a bunch of like homogenous data you should still probably use a flat list but if you have data that's not as homogenous or that has interactions in it it's probably better to use a card in the situation so the, in the material design guidelines there are very specific cases and kind of like examples of when you would want to use one or the other. And you can, you can, again, like you said, you can kind of tell when it doesn't quite fit. You know, maybe something's a little bit overwrought for the type of information you have. Or maybe there's just, you, you maybe just added all the things and you have like a lot going on. The, the, the guidelines generally do try to address things like that. They can't cover all the cases, of course, but it, they do give you a good idea of generally what's a good convention to do. All right, Gwen, thanks for that. That's uh, your time. Um, Before we move on, we want to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor. Tired of your dead-end job? Ever thought about changing your career? Dev Mountain makes it easier than ever to land your perfect job in tech. Dev Mountain is Utah's number one coding school, teaching modern technical skills for today's fast-paced, high-tech industries. They offer both full-time and part-time coding courses in web development, iOS development, and UX design. Dev Mountain's expert faculty are passionate about sharing their craft and empowering the next wave of programmers, entrepreneurs, and designers. Visit devmountain.com, that's D-E-V mountain.com, and start your new career today. Thanks again to Dev Mountain for sponsoring this episode of the RayWenderlich.com podcast. All right, Mick, your time starts now. I'm turning it over to you. Okay, so for this episode, I wanted to have a talk about our discussion about the framework that everyone loves to hate, uh, which is, of course, core data. In iOS 10, um, Apple have made some significant changes and improvements to core data. Um, when I was researching the topic for this for this episode, um, after I decided to, that core data you know, was what I wanted to discuss, I, I got quite excited about the possibilities of, of using it again. It's something that I've always wrestled with as a framework between sort of the numerous moving parts and the sort of uh, lines and lines and lines of boilerplate code that you have to write just to get these moving parts all to sort of sing in harmony. And then the problems that you run into, if, you know, if you're trying to do things concurrently um, and across different threads. And, you know, it seems like at least for the last few releases of iOS, um, they, they make changes to that concurrency model to try and improve things. And in some aspects it does, and in some aspects it makes things worse. Um, and then core data itself kind of has a bad reputation. It's not entirely undeserved because, um, you know, in some aspects it has always been a pain to work with. Um, but I think, you know, because high-profile firms, you know, like Facebook and people like that, kind of tried using it and then uh, dropped it and then went around uh, different iOS conferences telling everyone why they dropped it, it kind of, you know, gave gave Cordata a bit of a, a bad reputation. Uh, but, you know, doing the research, as I say, for this for this episode, watching the WDCC session video, reading some of the, uh, the docs, looking at some of the stuff the guys have done in the update for Cordata by Tutorials, uh, it seems Apple have, have really stepped up this year and brought about some real big changes that I think and they definitely think the way that they were pushing them in the session are going to solve a lot of the issues that people have had in the past. So these four that I've picked out that I want to that I want to focus on, and those four things are the core data stack 
uh, which is, as I said, you know, the one where you had all these moving parts and then this reams and reams of boilerplate code to, to get it all configured and working in harmony. Um, and there's a new concept called query generations, which we're going to look at. Concurrency, as I mentioned, that's something that they seem to iterate on each year to try and make our lives a little bit easier. Uh, they have made some big changes again to that. And then uh, some other changes have made to Xcode itself to support some of these changes. And I think those changes, as we get into them, I think if you are using core data or you are tempted of thinking about using core data, you know, this stuff's going to really appeal to you. So the first thing, uh, the core data stack. Now, previously, if anybody's done any work with core data, you know, in order to get the stack up and running, you need your NS managed object model, you need your NS persistent store coordinator, and you need your NS managed object uh, context, and you need to get them all hooked up and working together, and you initialize one, and then you initialize the other and pass it into to the next one. And, th you know, this is several lines of code, as I said, and you've got to be catching errors because sometimes it fails, and... That is something we've always had to deal with as core, de core data developers. And, you know, if you go on GitHub and search for core data, you'll find, you know, umpteen different libraries that kind of wrap all that up into, you know, easy to understand, easy to use API. Because it is such a pain that, you know, it's a problem that really did exist and other people have tried to solve because it seems something, it seems something that Apple were willing to overlook. Well... Not anymore because they have introduced a new object called NS Persistent Container that does all this for you uh, behind the scenes and in a safe way. Uh, they do say that once an NS Persistent Container um, is set up, you're guaranteed to, to have these objects uh, if you want to access them and they are fully initialized and they will work as you, you expect. And it does this by relying on some sensible defaults such as uh, before you used to have to create a a URL and pass that to the persistent store coordinator and say, this is where I want you to store my uh, my physical database on disk. Um, and obviously then there's all problems around whether or not that path exists. Did you, did, you know, did the folders and that, all that kind of stuff, are they in the right place? So you could fall at the first hurdle. Well, uh, NS Persistent Container takes care of all that. Within now, what used to be, like I say, reams and reams of code, boilerplate code that you had to write any time you wanted to use core data, you can now get rid of that and replace it with it. And it literally is just a couple of lines uh, of code. You you know, set up your persistent uh, container, you give it a name, and that name acts as the name of the database on disk, and then it sets it up in the background. Um, you get a completion block, and then once you get into that completion block, you know everything is up and, and running, and then you can carry on access or then you can set up accessing you know your your entities and your fetch requests and all that kind of stuff safe in the knowledge that all this is going to work and you've had to do very little and it's all going to be managed behind the scenes by core data now like before we would usually use them like the managed object context if i'm remembering right it's been a yeah. while since i've used core data but in order to save or to query you'd hit the managed object context do we yeah. still is the managed object context now a property of this container object or do we actually have a new api that we call to the container Right, well, it still is managed object context, and you hit the nail on the head. They are now properties. You can still create them independently, um, but but you do so by asking the persistent container for a new one. The persistent container will give you... Um, it has some contexts by default, so it gives you a context that it calls a view context, and that is the one that runs on the main thread, and that is the one that you want to do all your interaction with UI with and this is a, you know this is kind of a usual setup anybody using core data that wants to do sort of some you know like if you reach out to the web and you pull down a, 
a JSON file and you want to process that, you want to be doing that off the main thread and then only you know merge those changes into the context you've got set up on the main thread when everything's up and running. NS Persistent Container now has a, a view context which you can use. Um, you can ask it to give you a background context and each time you ask it, it will vend a, a, new, in, a new instance of um, NS Managed Objects context that's already set up to go on a background queue. But um, it does so in a more efficient way than if we were just creating them um, manually. But also, because most tasks that you want to do are like one-shot tasks, you don't really, you know, the, the, I asked you before we start recording this, you've used core data. So you kind of know that the, you know, the, the general gist of it is that you want to do something on the background. So you create a, a context, you, you set up your entities, you save them out to the database. And when all that's done, you throw that context away. So what NS Persistent Container does is it keeps a pool of these contexts. So each time you ask for one, it's it's not over-creating uh, these background contexts. But because most of these jobs are one-shot, you throw, you throw the context away when you're finished. It actually provides some new API where you can just say, you know, perform, I can't remember exactly what the API is, but it's basically perform this block on a background thread and you pass in a, a closure or a block and it, it will do that. So you don't even have to go through the whole rigmarole of, you know, waiting for it to vend one and then, you know, call in, uh, perform and wait or perform and block and save and all that kind of stuff. It will, you know, just run what, what is ever is in that closure that, that you pass it, which I think is really good. Now, one of the other API changes that they made uh, on NS Managed Object Context, since we're now talking about that, um, is that it will automatically merge its changes in from its parent or if it is a top-level context from its siblings. Now, this is this is massive because you used to have to merge them manually. So if you created a, a child context and you, your parent context made some changes or was fed some changes, um, you had to then manually filter those down. Well, this all is taken care of uh, manually now within this new core data stack setup. And because of this, if you are using NS fetch result controller, and I've got some good news for you just on that, Jake, which we can get to in a minute. Um, if you are using NS fetch results controller, which for those of you that don't know, is kind of like, it's a, it's a, an object that you can get from core data that you can feed into a UI collection view or a UI table view. And it already has an API that's ready to be hooked up to the delegate and data source methods of those two um, controls. Uh, and will work efficiently and performant and, uh, you know, like with performance in mind and conserve memory and all that kind of stuff. So that when you are scrolling in your table view, you know, it hasn't loaded your, say you've got a thousand records in your database. It's not loaded all thousand into memory. As you're scrolling, it's doing batch um, lookups and, and reads from the, the database. And, you know, it's doing it all in a really memory efficient way. Well, that, because of this automatic merging between contexts and uh, NS fetch results controller, works on a on a fetch request within a context it's all kept up to date uh, automatically which is great as i mentioned there's some good news for you jake because obviously you do uh, mac os development as well as ios and mm -hmm. ns fetch result controller is something that's been up until ios 10 and sierra mac os sierra has been exclusive to ios well you've now got that on mac os as well so you can make full use of 
NS Fetch results controller. Which That's I think really nice. And do all the changes you're talking about today, they all apply to OS X as well? I'm assuming they do, because why wouldn't they? But Yeah, well, there's only one that doesn't. And, and it's not so much a, it doesn't apply. It's more that uh, it's to do with a restriction on iOS rather than macOS. But we can get onto that as a, as a move on because that's okay. in the concurrency part that I want to discuss. A okay. couple of other things before we move on to the next one. Uh, NS Fetch Request now supports generics, which is really good. Uh, this is both on Objective-C and Swift, but primarily, you know, this makes sense on Swift. So before it was kind of you were using this um, proxy object, uh, as a generic with NS fetch request, uh, and I think it was called something like NS fetch request result or something like that. Uh, now you can actually scope it to the class of the entity that you are that you're um, working with, and both NS fetch request when you execute it and when working with NS fetch results controller will vend fully typed. Uh, instances of those classes rather than you having to do any downcasting or anything like that so that's really good and even the uh you know when you do like option click and it gives you the little help pop up it even shows you in there like the type of the object you're working with because it can do all that inference from the the type checking that that we get from swift Uh, and the final part as well that that kind of loosely fits in with this because it's related to ns fetch result controller is that um, it also supports the new UI collection view prefetching APIs. Now, I don't think we've talked about these yet, but this is just something uh, that they added to UI collection view in iOS 10 that makes it a little bit more performant and kind of puts it uh, almost on a par with UI table view in terms of performance. Obviously, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes with UI collection view because they're, they're no longer completely in control of the layout like they are in UI table view, and that's sometimes led to performance issues, especially with scrolling. Uh, and you know when it's backed by data so they, they give you these prefetching apis now and they've now updated ns fetch results controller to work with those so uh, you know they work in harmony together which which is really cool the next thing that i want to talk about which is a brand new concept to core data and one that i think again solves quite a few problems that people have had is this idea of query generation talk about the problem it solves first so then you know when we talk about what it is you kind of understand um Core data, the, the entire uh, infrastructure around core data, the way that it works, is, is built on this idea of faults. And fa- faults are, when you instantiate an object, um, uh, an NS managed object subclass, and that is obviously based on some data that's come out of the database, they aren't always populated immediately. A lot of the, the uh, properties on those entities are lazy loaded. So that if you... If you run a query and it returns, say, 100 objects, it's not going to instantiate all those 100 objects fully uh, at that time. What it will do is it will just instantiate the ones that it thinks that you are going to be using um, immediately. And then as you sort of move through that result set, it will performantly and efficiently and behind the scenes reach out and get the data as as you need it from the database and turn those objects into full objects rather than false, which is great in terms of a performance and an efficiency um, idea, and it it keeps memory usage down and it makes uh, core data really good in that term. You could often end up with a problem where you would extract some, or think you're extracting some some data from the database, so running a fetch request, and you would have these objects that you were working with, 
And because they were false and they weren't fully instantiated, um, some background process might be operating as well on that on that on that uh, data in the database, and it could delete those records or just delete the, the data that those properties need. So then when you reach for that object that's a fault and it goes out to the database to turn it into a fully uh, initialized object, it no longer can find the data and you know you would have to handle all these errors. What query generations does is it, it's this idea that you can take a snapshot of the data in your database at that moment in time. And then until you tell core data otherwise, you um, work with that snapshot exclusively everything else still works the same you're still working with faults um, it will still lazy load stuff but when you create a context and you tell that context um, that you want to pin it to a query well they call it a, a query generation token but the idea under the scenes is a snapshot of the data um, you are working with that's exclusive to you so a background uh, thread or background context may ma manipulate the data, the underlying data in the database, but you will never see those until you are ready to tell core data, okay, I'm done with this snapshot, either take me to the next snapshot uh, in the in the series of snapshots that we have, um, because each time you make a change to the database, it creates a new, well, they call it a new generation, but, you know, it, it is this idea of snapshotting. You can, or you can fast forward right right to the, to the, the most recent one, um, and that obviously then solves that problem because it's guaranteed that whenever you go out to turn that object that's a fault into a fully initialized object, it will give you the data that you expected to give it. It might not be the most recent data because something could have operated on it in the background and created a new um, snapshot of that data. But as far as sort of within that scope that you are running that, that fetch request, you are working with those objects in, you know, NS fetch results control or anything like that, and you reach out and you want to turn those faults into objects, it's guaranteed. Um, and they, what this allows you to do is it obviously, um, it allows you to provide your UI with a, a stable set of data that can't be removed from underneath it as you're operating it, which gets rid of a lot of the problems that people were having with core data and concurrency where you've got more than one context uh, working on a on a set of data that really don't communicate between them or if there is some communication it's something that you've had to mediate and write a ton of code to do that uh, now well, if you create a child context from a you know from a, an existing context they will share the same snapshot so if you if you've got a context and you've pinned it to a specific um, snapshot or generation then you can every time you create a, a child context off that parent context it will be pinned to that same generation so again you know this isn't just a one-time thing it as long as uh you're within the scope of that context and you you haven't told it to unpin itself from that snapshot and go somewhere else it it will always guarantee you to give to give you you and all your child context the same data now when you finish with it you can then manually advance to another snapshot and you do this using ns query generation token um and this is just a, a class and when you when you tell the context to pin itself to a snapshot it hands you back a a token or you can ask any other context for its token and then you can say to you know to your context pin to this uh token and hand it that token and it will although you can say you know um just now pin me to the most recent one and 
the way that so one of the other issues that you might be thinking oh this all sounds great but what happens if you know I'm working on an object that some background thread deletes in that sort of metaphor that I gave you before that analogy rather how does like what happens to that object when you finish with that snapshot well uh, obviously Apple wants to give developers as much control as they can over this kind of stuff so they don't want to make up some um, some sort of implicit rules that we can't really control. So to give you an idea of this merge policy, uh, so whenever when you set up your NS persistent container and your context and you you, you opt into this query generation because it is opt in, um, then you tell it what merge policy you want to use, and then when you are finished with your snapshot and you've saved all your changes out to your snapshot and you want to move, either move to a uh, a newer snapshot or the most recent, the newest snapshot, then that's where that merge policy comes into play. And as I said, this is opt-in. So there are three different states that you can opt-in. One is unpin, that's the default. So that means whenever you create a context, it will always be working with the most recent version of the, the data that's in the database. Um, you can tell it when you create a context to pin it to the data that it loads at the first time that it hits the database. Or you can pin it to a specific uh, generation and, and you do that with with the token and I think this is huge in terms of you know an improvement to core data just because it, it just allows you that isolation um, and that guarantee that you know you are working with a set of data and as long as that context is alive and you've not told it to move elsewhere you're guaranteed to have that data that you expect to be working with and no other background process no other thread no other context can come in and manipulate that data or remove it from underneath you and it means you can provide a really consistent experience and that your UI is going to function, you know, as well as you want it to, and the users expect it to. So I think that's a really good uh, addition to to core data. Yeah, we're about out of time, Mick. But you you mentioned concurrency. You've kind of touched on it a few times, but I'm I'm eager to know what else we, we haven't covered with concurrency. Prior to iOS 10, um, the persistent store coordinator serialized requests out to the database. So if you had two contexts, even if one of them, you know, even if they resided on different threads, you've got your main thread context and your background thread context. If they both set off a fetch request out to the database, you know, at the same time or one one immediately after the other, as when the persistent store coordinator got the first request, it locks against that request so they can fulfill that request. But what that does is it blocks that second context request. And that second context will sit and wait until the first one is done and the lock's removed. And then that's then the persistent star coordinator will then issue another lock based on the, the fetch request from that second context. So if that second context isn't a background thread context, but your UI or your main thread context, then obviously that's going to cause problems uh, with UI. And there was sort of, the only way to get around this was to set up two um, completely separate um, core data stacks. So rather than having one stack with multiple contexts, developers are having to move into having two completely different stacks because SQLite itself allows multiple readers, um, multiple connections, but core data doesn't. It serialized all requests. But new in iOS 10 is this idea that of having one writer and many readers so that you can, the persistent star coordinator now will allow you to run many uh, request out to the database concurrently, uh, as long as obviously they're all uh, reading. If there is if there's more than one writer, they will block. But if you're just running a, a fetch request and you want to take data out from the, the database, then you can run more than one and they will run um, 
concurrently, which is which is brilliant because uh, obviously this means that any background work can run concurrently with the main thread work uh, and uh, vice versa. Now, I did mention that there was a, a restriction on iOS. This only works with uh, SQL stores. So on iOS, SQLite is the default and only store that you can use with Cordata. But obviously on macOS, you can use XML and there is another one. I think there's three in total that you can use. So if you are on a, a macOS and you want to take advantage of this new concurrency model, then you need to make sure that you're using a, an SQL um, or SQLite um, as your persistent store and they have introduced some new API uh, around this concurrency stuff but we don't really obviously we're out of time so we really don't have time to go into that but definitely check out check out the, the docs for the new concurrency stuff but again that's a big one that now this idea of one writer many readers because it allows you to run uh, requests in parallel which is fantastic the last thing that I really want to squeeze in is they've made some big changes to Xcode to support all to support some new ideas in in core data especially the integration so obviously anybody that's um used xcode and core data before you know that it's got a really uh, good sort of i'm not sure how you would describe it like you can go in and you can create your entities and your relationships between your entities and you can even sort of uh, describe your your fetch requests so you can load them from disk rather than having to create them in code um they have made some changes now to the way that, that all that works Initially, so one of the problems with that is if you if you created your your model um, in this tool, but you didn't um, create the subclasses, the NS managed object subclasses, you had to use you know key uh, path um, to get at, at the properties, and you had to do a lot of downcasting and that. So one of the things that uh, the the tool allowed you to do was generate some subclasses of NS managed object which would describe those uh, model objects, but you, you could just instantiate them as you would normally. You could you, you know, you use the dot syntax to access a property, all that kind of stuff. One of the problems with that was um, anytime you made a change to your object model, you had to regenerate those classes. But if you had uh, added anything additional to those classes, as you know, we tend to do as developers, um, they got overwritten. So you had tools like MoGenerator come out where you know MoGenerator would generate the model classes and then generate you a subclass or a, a category in Objective-C um, where you would add in your, your custom stuff. And then whenever you change your model uh, in the tool and you regenerate your classes, it would override the original one and not the subclass. And you know that was one way of getting around that. Xcode will now allow you to generate those classes automatically whenever you change the model um, and you configure this as a on a per entity basis and instead of creating a class in your Xcode project it actually you never see the class it generates it because it puts it it caches it in derived data it will import it into your project behind the scenes so you have access to it you can instantiate all that kind of stuff but it doesn't pollute your Xcode project with the with the files uh, that it generates. Now, when you configure this, you can say, okay, generate a subclass um, of NS managed object, which is okay if you uh, don't plan on obviously making any uh, any changes to the model or you know they are few and far between. But if you wanna be more down the sort of the mode generator route where you are frequently making changes or adding in extra stuff, um, you can choose to have it generate a, a category or an extension in Swift for you. So then you can create your own 
uh, NS managed object uh, subclass of that name, and it will then add in all the this, this, necessary stuff in a, in a category. So it's done really well. Um, and each time you build, so you save your model and then you build your project, it will regenerate these files for you in the background. It stores them in derived data so you never see them. It'll put, import them into your project so you can use them. Um, so your so that those changes that you make in your model are, are available almost immediately. I say almost because obviously it takes the time that it takes to build your project before you can use them. But in most cases, that's not a long time. But I thought, again, that was a really good a really good uh, addition to core data. They've, they've put a lot of work into the framework, but now clearly they've looked at some of the problems that people had outside of that. So just using them with an Xcode, they've looked at clearly they've looked at tools like MoGenerator because they, you know that's clearly been Sherlocked in the way that they've they've implemented this. Um, so it looks like this release of core data is is attempting to solve a lot of the problems that people have had of you of using it. I think that maybe some of this has come from pressure from you know from things like Realm, because Realm does a lot of this from day one out of the box. Core Data, I mean, I made a note about this. I'm pretty sure Core Data was around when I first got my first Mac in 2006, uh, at least on uh, OS X as it was then, uh, Mac OS. Uh, Jake, you might be able to correct me on that. But it's an old framework. It's been a long time. And yet a lot of this stuff is very modern and kind of steps it up to the level where some of these other frameworks like Realm um, and Firebase and things like that are, are leaning towards. So all in all, I think these are some fantastic additions to Core Data and I can't wait to get stuck in. Yeah, those are huge. Every one of those things was, I was like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so that's really exciting. I can't wait to play with it. Um, well, so that that's our time. That's a wrap for this episode. Thanks again for joining us, Wynn. Oh, thanks. And like, I just wanted to say, like, it sounded like I was complaining about material design, but uh, just to be fair, uh, the Android team has been working really, really hard to provide a lot of components that make actually material design a lot easier to do. So you should definitely um, check out the support library as well, um, because it's, 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 it's actually been a pleasure to do material design. So I just want to say that because it sounded like I was complaining right when I left off. But um, yeah, you should definitely check out Chris Baines, Nick Butcher, and a good friend of mine, Yash Prabhu, did a really good talk on how to implement all these awesome things in Android. So, But thanks for having me on. Well, we'll make sure that and anything else that you have will go into the show notes uh, so people Absolutely. can check this stuff out. Cool. As always, if you have any feedback or comments on the podcast, then please get in contact via podcast at raywenderlich.com. And don't forget to leave your reviews on iTunes. Those help us out. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the raywenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.